I realized really quickly that there is no one really addressing comprehensively the issues that are impacting girls, these drops in confidence and their challenges in relationships with one another and their limited aspirations about what they can become. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. I'm excited to introduce um, all of our listeners to uh, an amazing um, lady that I've had the privilege of knowing for a on a decade or more. Um, our journeys uh, kind of started together um, a little bit. Uh, so joining us today is Dr. Lisa Hinkleman. Um, she is chief everything tied to an amazing organization called um, Ruling Our Experience. She is the founder and CEO. The program's often uh, referred to as ROCKS. And Lisa's background is as an educator, a counselor, a researcher, an author, an advocate, a mentor, a creative thinker, a community changer, an amazing entrepreneur and change agent. And I am so thrilled, Lisa to have you join me today. That was the most amazing introduction I've ever <laughs> received in my entire life. So, wow, thank you. I am I'm beyond honored to be here and um, excited for our conversation. Excellent. So a little bit of context, as I, uh, I said, um, I've known Lisa for a number of years. And I think the way we met actually is, is very relevant to the conversation that we are about to have today. And back for folks who might not um, have gone all the way through the series, these conversations are about teaching, learning, and the future of work, and the way that as a community of practitioners across the vast space that pulls our future together, um, that there are a lot of folks out there doing really, really amazing work across the sectors. Um, and as practitioners on the ground, day-to-day, in schools, working with kids, really getting folks ready to be the next great citizens um, in our world, um, that there, there's work out there there um, that you need to know about that are great case studies that can inform your practice and your decision making on the local level. And certainly the work that Lisa's doing in Rocks is part of that. Lisa and I first met um, as grant recipients at something called the Women's Fund, um, which is global, um, but also has local, local flavors. And so um, we both put in proposals uh, to do programming tied to girls and moving girls um, into a variety of, of different ways. Ours was around forensics and forensic sciences and getting more girls into some applied space. Um, and Lisa's was tied to this amazing program she's built called Rocks. And so that journey meant that we got to intertwine over the course of our grant year. Uh, we got to learn from each other and to really think about uh, community and impact. And so that sort of sets the stage for, for getting to watch the program grow. So Lisa, let's just roll up our sleeves and launch in. So first and foremost, what the heck is rocks and 
why or what were you thinking to, I mean, starting a new organization is really hard. We did an entire episode about um, startup and what it means to be in the education space or thinking in startup. And it's not easy. So how, how and why? Well, I think that Rocks is an organization that was never supposed to be an organization. Uh, it started in 2006. I was a professor of counselor education at Ohio State and working a lot with girls in school and community settings. And I realized really quickly that there is no one really addressing comprehensively the issues that are impacting girls, these drops in confidence and their challenges in relationships with one another and their limited aspirations about what they can become. And I realized that all these things are tied together. Um, they're not disparate ideas that are impacting girls. They're connected based on the, the worldview and the lens and the messaging that girls are getting that are telling them that this is what girls are supposed to be like. This is what they're supposed to look like. These are the kinds of things they're supposed to like doing. And these are the careers they're supposed to pursue. And I feel like those messages are so restricting. And so I decided, like, let's create a program. Let's create a research study. Right to learn about how we can help girls shift their ideas of themselves, shift their skills and abilities and competencies so that they can navigate these challenges that they'll face differently. And so we put a research team together and started a pilot program in three Columbus City schools um, and collected data pre and post. And then we took that data and modified the lessons and the curriculum and kept doing that for five years. And so this incubation period allowed the program to grow to more than 20 schools, but then also learn like, oh, there's some things that we can be doing better in this world for girls and in this program for girls. And so it was the part of my job that was giving me the most energy. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 2011, we decided to make the jump and incorporate as a 501c3. And so Rocks now is a, a national nonprofit. Uh, we train and license school counselors, social workers, and educators to deliver a 20-week evidence-based program in schools with girls that really focuses on a lot of the issues I just mentioned, as well as even more. Mm -hmm. Healthy relationships, dating violence, sexual violence prevention, academic and career development, leadership, right? All those big spaces. Then we also do national research with girls. And so we completed a survey of almost 11,000 girls called the Girls Index that we are disseminating widely um, to allow the adult influencers in girls' lives to be able to understand what's going on for them, but then also work with them, support them, communicate with them differently. And the last piece of, of our work at Rocks is how do we adequately hit those people who have the most influence over girls. And we see that as their parents, mm -hmm. as their educators. And, and for us, it's how do we create learning modules for them to be able to connect with, work with, support, empower girls in, in a more comprehensive way. So while we've kind of evolved into this national or emerging national organization, the idea of being becoming a nonprofit executive or a CEO was never in my game plan. I am a counselor. I'm an educator. I'm all good in that space. But starting a nonprofit was like, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, no, I I, I live that with you, right? Yeah. Uh, that was never, ever in uh, the, the intent, but uh, certainly part of the journey. Well, because yeah. when I think we first met, I was still at Ohio State. Yeah, you were. We were kind of yeah. doing this thing. And when it was sort of like, take this jump, I thought like, 
okay, let's figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And so I've been on a crash course of learning how to be a CEO <laughs> and an executive and grow an organization and understand nonprofit um uh, management versus social entrepreneurship, which is a whole new mm-hmm. place for me as well. And so it's, you hit the ground and you just hustle. And, and it's and it's a journey, but it's a great journey. For sure. Yeah, a lot of learning. A lot of learning. A lot of learning. Well, so I want to dig in a little bit to a few pieces and and, and also um, sort of sort of share out that, you know, the research um, that you initially did and, and where and how we met ultimately led to, um, to an award-winning book, um, Girls Without Limits. And then that then fed into, um, you know, getting to the work with the Girls Index. And so I want to just kind of dig in a little bit about how the things that you've learned can really be impactful as schools, teachers, families, communities, thinking about transitioning environments. And I think that's one of the really big keys is recognizing the collective set of participants that are going to be in the endeavor that we're working on, right? So we have lots and lots of conversations about folks talking about either transitioning schools or making new schools or creating these new programs out there that bridge school and life and work and community. Um, and so I, I see this as a real opportunity for us to be very mindful and to recognize the intent. What do we need to know so that one piece of our participants, our, our rising rock star girls, these, this, this body that's so incredibly adept what do we need to know as it relates to doing that? So I, I want to start with, as you kind of dug in, um, what what are the top two or three things that you learned that changed the way you think about the importance of these questions? I think that when we think about the issues impacting girls in schools, there's an element of the academic pursuit and the way that we do education in our country that focuses first on academic outcomes Mm -hmm. and second on everything else that a kid is. We know that to create uh, effective adults and, and great citizens and people who are producing at their highest levels, that those non-academic issues impact what they become, what they can do. It impacts their outcomes in these profound ways. Absolutely. And let and yet it's it's the second thing that we talk about, or or the third or the fourth. It's like, let's get the kid a tutor, right. let's get them in the most rigorous courses, let's get them, you know, a, an ACT and SAT, like all of the things that we focus on are academic. And we have girls who are struggling profoundly, not academically, right. but personally and socially. And so for me, it's how do we can make those connections between what girls are experiencing and how they're viewing themselves and their opportunities and then show how that impacts academic outcomes. And I think that when we look at girls' confidence, Mm -hmm. it's the primary element that we see deteriorating between fifth and ninth grade. And when we think about confidence as a construct, it is the fundamental element that dictates all of our decision-making. More confident people make better decisions. Mm -hmm. They make better decisions in relationships. They make better decisions in careers. They make better decisions in in their academic choices. They they make better decisions across the board. And when we have this confidence challenge and this crisis for girls, we are not addressing how that is impacting all of the decisions that they're making. And that was one of the core fundamental Mm -hmm. elements of 
No one, everyone thinks like confidence is this squishy little construct and like, oh, that's so nice. Let's talk about self-esteem. Woohoo. That's really great and important. But it, no one pays attention to it. Right. And for me, it was we have to get to the core of that human experience and shift the way that a girl experiences herself because she's not experiencing herself the way that other people experience her. Correct, correct. And we see that all the time. And I think this is one of those places where, you know, at the Past Foundation, we actually for real, tap into Lisa's work all the time. It is rare, for example, that, and we do a lot of um, STEM and experiential-based programming, a lot of pilots to try to find different ways to engage a wide array of students and, and, and people's experiences into finding their passion uh, for life and career. And through that, we often will, um, will create programs specifically for girls, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, we know without qualm or question um, that this sweet spot, the space that we so desperately, collectively, globally need to roll up our sleeves and live in is that fifth to eighth grade, fifth to ninth grade, you know, that middle sort of school or middle life uh, for those students sort of experience because so many things happen in that space. And so as we think about those implications, we see that the the questions around confidence, competence, knowledge, and experience, a lot of folks get those things really, really confused. And to your point, um, if we don't have a solid understanding not only of what those things are and are not, but the implications of understanding what they are and are not. We can never build experiences or programs to help foster and build the things that we want. So what does the work with rocks tell us about that? It's telling us that girls are tremendously competent. Hmm. They're working really hard in school and in sports and in in their relationships, they many times have a desire to be perfect in all of those spaces. Um, and not share until it's perfect. That is oh, definitely sure. something that, that is, as girls, as women, we, we that is our tendency. Yeah, right? let me just get this yeah. all right. And, and I have to get it right, not just for me, right. but for everybody else. Right. I want my teachers, I want my parents, I want my friends, I want my coaches all to experience me in a certain kind of way. Right. So we see these girls as little pressure cookers Mm -hmm. and lack the coping skills to navigate some of those biggest challenges. Simultaneously, we see that those girls with the highest achievements, the highest levels of GPA, the highest attainments are often the ones who feel the least competent, Mm -hmm. even though they're demonstrating competence on a daily basis. And I mean, one of the stats that continually blows me away and when I speak about it is that we found in our research that the girls with the highest grade point averages, 4.0 or above, 30% of those didn't think they were smart enough for their dream job. Mm -hmm. And that category of girls was the least likely to say what they're thinking or disagree with others because they want to be liked. And so tangled up in all of that academic achievement are these girls who are struggling profoundly that aren't getting ancillary services that we're not paying attention to because we're like, oh, look, she's got it all together. She's fine. She's fine. She's fine. And, and, you know, and and I see examples of that at the Innovation Lab because um, as a prototyping facility, we have um, kids in with us all the time. And we are very fortunate that we have 
many of these kids with us mo- over a course of multiple years. We're, we're, we're not a school, and so kids don't come and interact with us like they do in a school. But we, we get to go on journeys with them. And what I can tell you without having to think about it, multiple times as you know as you're speaking i can see particular faces popping into my mind's eye and these two a one fit the exact description that you provided amazing amazing talent competent smart just off the charts capable And I can watch them start to fall apart because of the pressures largely that they put on themselves. But I would also argue that a lot of the pressure that happens comes because we've not yet built the right environment to foster all the other pieces. Absolutely. And I think that the concept that we didn't talk about directly is self-efficacy, right? right? Right. Is that you can have the highest levels of intelligence, but if you don't have the belief in your own ability, then you're going to underperform. And so we know that self-efficacy is like that internalized belief Mm -hmm. that I can actually do this makes an independent contribution to the outcomes academically and in all these other facets of one's life. But it tends to not be the thing that we really want to like get in Mm -hmm. and dig in on. Mm -hmm. But even when we look at like large-scale educational research, self-efficacy beliefs outperform homework. They outperform class size. They outperform all of these other tenets of like what makes education work for kids. And that those self-beliefs are one of the highest predictors Mm -hmm. of academic outcomes. Right. And I think that it's really intriguing because the the flip side of that, um, and as we think about, um, you know, teachers, schools, communities, families that are thinking about how can we take the amazing data that's in the girls index and actually apply it as we are you know, at that big giant whiteboard space and saying, we're going to design something new, right? One of the things that I think I always sort of push folks to come back to is that we have to be really, really mindful of the environment that you're trying to build, right? And I don't just mean the physical space, but all the interplay spaces as well. And so for the kids that I've watched and, you know, we're surrounded by kids struggling through this very journey that you're talking about. And some get to the backside and they, they have a very different set of struggles or successes than, than the, the kids standing right next to them. And to your point, it's because of so many of these factors. When I'm able to dig in with those kids who at the, on the backside of it are so excited to launch into the next stage of their life, I think that one of the commonalities was a collaborative, supportive environment that taught them or showed them how. Oh, absolutely. And I think the the environment that you construct and the safety of that environment allows people to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And vulnerability is sometimes where we grow, right? It's very hard to take a risk in a space to try something new that you've never done before if you think you're going to be made fun of, right. if you think you're going to be kicked out of the club, if everyone's going to laugh and snicker, like if all that's going to happen, like I will just keep my mouth shut and not even try because dealing with all of that is actually a little harder than me trying something new. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we find putting girls in all girl spaces can reduce some of that environmental pressure. But then it's not just putting them in a room and saying, like, we're all girls, we should all support each other, because that doesn't happen either. Right, right. Um, But if we 
intentionally construct these spaces with expectations of behavior, with shared ownership of the environment, with this is how we're going to treat each other here. These are kind of the rules and expectations that we all get to contribute to. Then it's like, we know that taking a risk or trying something new Putting myself out there, Mm -hmm. I I don't have to have the fear associated with that because if I bomb and I just mess it up completely, I got these people that are going to support me and help me learn from it and grow from it so that I can try it again. Because the more I can try it in this safe environment, the easier it's going to be for me when I have to do it out there in the real world Mm -hmm. or in a, a less safe environment or in a classroom that has me quite intimidated. And we still know that girls raise their hands less in class. Mm -hmm. We know that girls get called on less Mm -hmm. by teachers. And some of this is connected to their own sense of self and their voice. And one of the other pieces that, that connects to this as well is nearly half of girls say that they don't say what they're thinking or disagree with others because they want to be liked. Right, right. And that whole needing to be okay mm-hmm. um, is one of the elements that we have to create an environment to undo a bit. Right, right. right. Is that it's okay for me to state my voice or state my opinion, and you're still going to like me after that. Right, right. And I think that that's a scaffolded environment. And that's one of the things that I love, quite frankly, about the ROCKS program is because you know, on the one hand, it creates an environment that allows um, girls to experience and grow those skills. But the other thing that it also does is it actually scaffolds some skills through its process. So could we touch base a little bit about that? What what exactly does the ROCKS program and some components of it that, you know, ideally, and I will fully advocate for this, that, you know, every, every school, every educational or community endeavor, you know, uh, across the globe should take on the ROCKS program and and make it part of the fabric of who they are because it makes the foundational components of anything that they do, I think, better and more self-aware. So what what are some of those nuts and bolts of that program that you think that are, are the key components to setting the foundation? Because I do think it's foundational. I think that one of the elements that we find critical is a is a small group delivery mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. It's a very different experience to have 10 or 12 girls together in a in a group for an extended period of time. Our program is 20 weeks. Right. So we don't just like throw a bunch of girls in a room, do a big assembly and say like go change the yeah. world, like cuz that doesn't work, right. right? So I do think that at that that small group implementation by a professional, right? right? So right. I, I think that that person who is trying to create this environment as well as these cognitive and behavioral shifts needs to have a foundational understanding of not just being an advocate for girls, but understanding how girls learn, understanding how girls change behaviors, how girls try out new things. And so for for ROCKS, we, we only train people who have degrees and licenses in counseling and education. Right, right. And, um, but then I, I also think it's the content that has to be relevant mm-hmm. for the girls. And so often adults decide what that content, content should is, be. Yeah. And we were like, well, we were girls once, so we know what they need now. And they're like, ew, you were like, you are old, old. you were a girl so long ago, (laughs) you have no idea what life is like right now. And the reality is we don't, Don't, right? right? And Mm -hmm. I think so often the adults in girls' lives want to convince them Mm -hmm. that we're cool and we're relevant and they're... And that is worse, right? Right, right. Absolutely. (laughs) And And so I think one of the pieces is 
talking to the girls about what they need and what their experiences are because they're the experts on their own life. Mm -hmm. Like they're living it, they're going through it. And instead of trying to convince them that we get it, Mm -hmm. like having them invite us into that space, I think is one of the, the key elements. And even though we have a sense of conceptually what we want them to get to or the skills that we want them to learn, the way that that happens needs to be responsive mm-hmm. to their experiences and relevant to their lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, we have seen time and time again, the most powerful programs are the programs that the students actually had a hand in co-creating or at, or at minimum, if they can't be part of the creation, they had the opportunity uh, to modify them to fit the need. And that's a powerful experience all the way around. So as as you think about the scaffolding of those foundational skills, and again, I, I'm going to keep coming back to this because I see it manifest itself over and over again. When I watch, um, and again, uh, a preface that there are really um, amazing work that's happening out there, uh, great programs that are happening, um, you know, in terms of opportunities for students. But there's an awful lot of what I would like to to think of as sort of epic near misses. And if you really dig into why a program, an effort, an initiative, a tra- you know transformative experience for students fails, oftentimes what you'll find is the foundational pieces for success were not there, right? And the, the girls who go through the Rocks program, they st- they come out of the backside of that 20 weeks. To say that they're empowered, I think, is, is not giving it a, enough credit. But, but that's, that's a term that we, we all recognize. That folks are standing there feeling ready. That translates into the decision-making and the opportunity and, and the ability to recognize an opportunity. And I think that's the other piece, right? Because that's the other one that we often see that kids don't opt in. And why don't they opt in? It's a very different reason for girls than it is for boys. Oh, absolutely. I think that for for girls, they define themselves in relation to others, right? Mm-hmm. We We grow up learning to be interdependent instead of independent. And so being part of a group is really important to girls, to most girls, in different kinds of ways than it can be for boys. But it's also... The way that girls are mean to each other, right? right? They oh, use yeah. their relationships with each other to to be aggressive with each other, and that whole relational aggressive piece is like, who who's going to be in this group? Are these my people? I don't know. Do I fit in? And setting that element of of safety and expectation with girls who might not be friends with each other, who might be in completely different cliques, but to cultivate an environment of learning is a key strategy and and a competency of the educators who are working with them. So how do you do that? And how do you how do you translate cuz that is the absolute heart and soul of how um how what you've learned through your work translates into every day in a classroom, right? That is integrated or maybe is gender specific depending on the school, but the reality of it is at the end of the day that practitioner has to achieve that same goal in the ecosystem that is theirs. How do they do that? I think, and I will say this again, I think the first element is classroom safety. And it's not something that teachers pay a lot of attention to. 
in the sense of— Define that for our listeners, right? Because everybody's going to have a completely different take on that idea. I don't mean classroom safety, like, from a violence perspective. I mean uh, an environment that is safe for students to take risks and try out new behaviors. And that's all students, boys Mm -hmm. and girls, Mm -hmm. both want classroom safety. And— and that can be cultivated in a co-gender environment. That does not, like, we only have to have an all-girl space to create that. But there's another piece around expectations that teachers and educators and everybody has about what girls and boys should be. And girls do hear a lot of, this is these are tasks for girls and these are tasks for boys. Absolutely. And Absolutely. In, in our research, um, one of, there is one school in particular that, Something had happened recently, and all these girls had written on their surveys, can you please tell Mr. Such-and-so <laughs> that girls can carry heavy things, too? Because he would apparently walk into a room and say, I need three strong boys to come help me with these boxes. And when I tell that story to, like, groups of teachers, they all laugh and uh-huh. chuckle, but they know they do that, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you see it every single day. All the time. And when you call someone on it, Oftentimes, the response I didn't even realize I was doing that. And and that's fair. Fair for us to recognize we, we don't know that we have completely internalized that cultural aspect of who we are. For sure. Or we don't give girls options right. of spaces where they might get dirty. Yeah. Uh, because we, we think we're doing them a favor, right. but we're really making the decision for them. And I think that sometimes just our language mm-hmm. in environmental spaces about how we talk about girls or how we expect them to behave. Because right. there is also this like, oh my gosh, these girls are so dramatic. And <laughs> it's just girls, it's just girls being girls. And it's so hard to work with all of these girls. And I think that sometimes we internalize that this is how girls are mm-hmm. and this is how girls communicate. And this is the future of what is in store for girls. And instead of saying, wait, like these communication styles are taught and and learned. Learned, absolutely. And yeah. these relationship skills mm-hmm are taught and learned. And instead of seeing this as like a character deficit, we saw it as a skill deficit, we would focus entirely differently Different. on how we helped build those relationships and environments that are pro-girl. And from an educator's perspective, it's how does the language that you use, how does the environment that you cultivate, and how does the experience of each of those students in that space mm-hmm. contribute to stereotypical behavior or gender norms or gender roles? Or how does it give all of the students the chance to push back? Because let's be honest, right now, it's pretty hard for boys to push out of their expected gender roles too. Mm -hmm. And it's like we're holding everybody back by perpetuating. And I think that it's not just like, well, I tell girls that they can be anything that they want because that doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. Doesn't help. No. There's no solution in that statement. Correct. And yet people feel like that's a really Mm -hmm. pro-girl thing. Mm -hmm. Go do and be anything Mm -hmm. you want. Mm -hmm. I love the sentiment, but where are the skills and the competencies that are required for her to get there? Absolutely. And and again, that's another thing that we see on a regular basis. And, you know, as we think about helping schools contemplate shifting program, which gets back to we can backfill skills gap, but but recognizing um, the differences that we need to ensure that every every learning opportunity is in fact an opportunity for all the participants. And, and a lot of times what I see in program design 
back to your point, is program design um, is inherently limiting in who can fully participate. If we don't step back from it at that early design phase and recognize, um, you know, these components that, you know, this particular groups of, of learners, our girls are going to function this way and our boys are going to function this way. And we can actually design something that allows not only success for all, but collaborative success across that as well uh, as we scaffold those skills. So as schools wrestle uh, or communities wrestle with this, Lisa, and think about then sort of the next iteration, because I do really appreciate... Um, I am the mom of boys, um, and it is a really tough space. And there's a lot of conversation over the last, you know, year, 18 months that needed to happen. But there's also a, an inherent risk in that as well. And so as schools are, are contemplating and thinking about what to do with the collective uh, sort of stuff that's happening— what, what's your best advice as they think about how to continue down the path that so many are on to make it possible to change the dynamic or the experience for girls and success in that sort of K-12 environment? I think that boys and girls are both experiencing tremendous mm-hmm. challenges. They just look different. Mm-hmm. And so they need different things in the process. I get a lot of questions of like, oh, when are you making a rocks p- for boys? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not, not making a rocks I'm for boys. I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, I need some boy to go do that, right? And, and, but, but I think that we can't hold back the services and programming and experience that girls need because we haven't quite found the equivalent yet for boys. Mm-hmm. I would agree, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think when we think about what it is that boys and girls need, separately in these academic spaces, we're talking primarily about social social and emotional learning competencies. Exactly. We're not talking about academic competence. We're not talking about content. No. Absolutely. And we people know. get wrapped up in content, right? To, back to your very original statement, you know, school or educational environments is all about that performance. And that's really only a tiny piece of it, what we're trying to accomplish. It's a tiny piece of who we yeah. are, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that the academic environment focuses exclusively on our academic performance mm-hmm. with some spaces that we pay other attention to. Right. but but. The social and emotional development of boys is something that is not cultivated for them either. Mm-hmm. And I think if we begin to pull this, these SEL competencies and align them with our academic competencies, we will do a, a great service to all of our students right. and instead of seeing it as a secondary outcome or as something that we can't devote resources toward. And that tends to be the issue that we face, right, mm-hmm. is, you know, we don't have money to support that program. Uh, there's not time in the day to do that. And I think what are we doing to our kids mm-hmm. if we're if we're telling them that who they are and what they can become is secondary to how they perform on a particular test that's the challenge that i think we face and in schools it's how do we create environments for boys to do stuff together mm-hmm. too right. with effective role models with people who are going to help them um, address some of the toxic masculinity things that are hurting boys right now and how are we going to help girls develop their voice in a space that feels intimidating or could be overwhelming right and i think that like that that's not all girls not all girls are challenged in that way but many of them are and according to our research more than half of them are right right and and so i think it's it's thinking about the student 
support systems that accompany the academic support systems and how we begin to think about school counselors, people services, school social workers as ancillary and inextricably connected to the academic outcomes of our students is when we begin to shift to see that child as a whole child. Mm -hmm. And when we think about the ed reform initiatives that are coming and what people are paying attention to, there starts to be a movement towards paying attention to social and emotional Mm -hmm. learning. And I, I hope that continues because I think it's our only hope to produce effective citizens who are fully actualizing their potential. Yeah. And I, I would agree with you. And I hope that that um, that trend continues, and I would like to to add to that hope that I think that one of the disconnects and one of the reasons we we are we are now having this, these collective sets of conversations, and thank goodness that we're bringing um, social and emotional pieces into it is, you know, what is it that we are preparing students for? And that, in my mind, and certainly that's the primary piece of our work, right, is to try and change the global conversation about what the heck are we doing and why, right? Because that has to be part of the shift, to get to the point where everything that you've learned from your research and the programs that are being actually have have a have a place to aim for, because quite frankly, academic success, um, content knowledge in the 21st century is not what we should be doing. And because it's not what we should be doing, in my opinion, it's not what we should be doing. It makes it really, really difficult for us to effectively address. The, the the everyday happening or experience of our participants. If at the end of the day, um, you know, we are we are we are trying to create the next group of citizens through emerging workforce, and we stop thinking about K twelve and post secondary and business and industry as insular stops along the way, right? That there is an, an integrated thing. We are literally um, growing our citizenry. What if we thought about our role as helping kids develop and produce a life that they love. Exactly. Passion. Like something. There's got to be a place for that in in the sense that academic competence will get you so far. Mm -hmm. But how many people are that you know are like super smart and have these great high power jobs and they are so miserable because they're not, they didn't have the opportunity to connect or think about their values, their skills, their interests, their abilities, what they like to do, and how that can connect to the world of work. Exactly. All they are is cultivated to a certain direction because your college material. Right. Or you're good at math and science, so you should go this direction. And we miss out on the other aspects of this world and this life that make us full, capable, enjoyable, passionate humans. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we look at success in the workplace and happiness and contentedness in the workplace, there's a there's a very low correlation to academic achievement. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. And but that's just like that's just such a big squishy idea that's really hard to get your head around. Oh right? Lisa. <laughs> oh Lisa. It is a big squishy idea, but but um but again, I think um worth 
worth the time and effort in the conversation if and only it, it, it moves from conversation to action, right? And, you know, the, the flip side or the back piece of all of this, and I see this every single day and had a beautiful conversation um, recently with, with a, a young, energetic young woman who was explaining to me a bit of her, her academic journey and what she thought back to our original premise here about how girls think about themselves. And she explained to me because she has this amazing uh, experience growing up and support um, in the world of arts and music and things like that. So she 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 came to um, her high school experience believing she was capable of only and her words only being an artist, which is which is a fabulous piece of who she was. And because she was able to embrace and, and opt in and have some additional experiences, she found that she actually had a passion someplace completely different. And, and, and at 17 years old, you know, she's articulating my path and my journey has shifted radically because I realized I was capable of doing these other things. And through being capable of doing those other things, that I could find passion in doing them. And that's an incredible value add. But we don't have a lot of opportunity to let students find those passions they don't even know that they have. Our system, to your point, is not, is not set up to allow for the opportunity to even try. No. And, you know, and I think about that from my own perspective is my parents didn't go to college and I grew up, you know, so when your parents don't go to college, most none of their friends went to college mm-hmm, either. And right. so you live in an environment where you don't really know anyone who went to college except your teachers and your doctor and, you know, right, that right. sort of stuff. But there was always this message of you're going to go to college. Um, and I think my my mom especially felt that for me because she was um, an elementary school secretary. And so when you think about her in that environment, she's one of a handful of people in that school who didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even though she ran the whole school, right, because that's what those secretaries do, um, there was a element of being less than. Exactly. Perceived it, as not quite. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, it was, you're going to college. We had no idea how that was going to happen or how we were going to pay for that or anything. And I'm still paying for that. But <laughs> um, but it it was, what do I go do and be? And I was like, you be a doctor. Right. And at that point, I, I said I was going to be a real doctor. Right. Um, a PhD <laughs> is a doctor, but it's a different kind of doctor. But it was there was not any real passion around that. It was just like, that's what I'm supposed to do because I get good grades and I'm supposed to go to college. And it wasn't until later, later in my undergraduate work and then in my graduate work, that passion mm-hmm. became a thing. Right. And right. that you could actually think about how you can create and craft a life or a career space around things that are meaningful to the world, that fire you up every day, and that makes your work not feel like a job. Right, right. Absolutely. I feel really lucky to have that because I don't think a lot of people do. No. Well, you know, I, I perceive that we all should. My husband actually tells me this all the time. So, you know, Annalise, the problem here is you just don't get it. Most people don't actually like what they do. Right. And I'm like... I can't even fathom that, right? And it never it never occurred to me in my journey because I tried a little bit of everything. I don't know if you were that kid, but but like you, you know, this expectation, you're going to go off, you're going to do college, you're going to do whatever this ha- thing happens to be. But I didn't know what that was. So, you know, fortunately or, or unfortunately, it depends on your perspective, you know, I was a bit of a serial try everything, right? I think I had every major you could have in undergrad. 
because I tried them all. Yes. You know, and I, and I, and it's what it's perplexing to me. And, and, and again, my husband reminds me on a regular basis, you just don't get it. That the majority of folks don't actually go to work every day and love what they do. They go to work every day because it's something that they have to do. And that ethos is um, really important to me. And it is it is a foundational piece in our own programming at the PASS Foundation, if nothing else, that we provide an opportunity for folks to explore very, very early on and to become confident and strong and self-aware within that space. And to not be limited but in any way right. by where they grew up, mm-hmm. what they were exposed to, their gender, their race, their socioeconomic status, the narrative that puts them in a in a space that puts them on a certain trajectory that is often so limiting. And Absolutely. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do believe that you you can't be what you can't see. But even sometimes when you see it and you don't think that you fit it, it's still not seen as accessible to right. you. Because you also can't do what you don't know. And that's the piece I always like to add to that. And we, we both um, utilize that frequently. And that's really, really critical because even if, to your point, I can see on the outside someone who might look like me, but I can't on the inside internalize that back to me. And to even know that it's possible or some iteration, other iteration of it is possible, I will never get there. And I think one of the interesting stats that jumped out to me, and I bet it did for you too, is while we see this drop in confidence in girls, so fifth through ninth grade, there's a tremendous drop. Right, right. There's a very similar drop in their perceptions of their abilities in math and science. Right. What jumped out to me as different in this data is that while their confidence was declining in those areas, their interest was increasing. Mm-hmm. So we're doing something that is providing girls increased interest in STEM fields and careers in that space, but what's still holding them back is their perceptions of their abilities in that space. Absolutely. And so when I'm thinking about career development and how we're talking to students about the four-year course plans that they're on. And in eighth grade, right, we're setting kids up for a trajectory of what are the courses that they're going to be able to take by the time that they're seniors. And if we see that interest is there, but the confidence is dwindling, we have a responsibility to address that because she'll opt out. She will opt out almost every single time. It's, It's socially and internally easier to opt out. And we have to be mindful of that. Absolutely. Um, You know, Lisa, I want to thank you very much um, for the work that you do, first and foremost, and the contribution that it's making um, to our global community um, as we all uh, wrestle with um, how to do a better job of of providing opportunity uh, for uh, amazing uh, piece of our population. I always try to, to, to help folks at schools that are wrestling with, you know, what do we really do in this space? And as we think about our, our redesign and do we really need to step back and take the time and quite frankly, the expense? Because uh, it always boils down to money when we're dealing with schools and, and we understand that, right? And so is it worth the time and the expense to step back 
and think about these pieces as we design the next thing. And I, I think, if nothing else, the basic global economy um, should should be the factor if, if they can't wrestle with the other pieces, right? That 50% of our planet or more, you know, is, is, is at stake and the contribution to our global economy and society is part of this journey. So. Absolutely. And if we're not having the full investment of girls and their voices and opinions part of that narrative, we're missing out profoundly on what can happen and what this world can be if all the girls were actualizing their potential. And, uh, just think. Think of it. It's it's awing, right? Yeah, yeah. it's, it's it my daily motivator, right? Absolutely. There's so much potential. Absolutely. It's astounding. And and it's like our job to pull that out. It's our, like, I feel like because we know that this stuff is happening, we now have a responsibility to to shift the experience and to shift the culture and to make longstanding individual group and societal impact for girls. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so on that, um, I encourage all of our listeners to, uh, to, think about and bring rocks to your community. We'll have resources available for you to make it easy for you to reach out. There are very few programs with so much impact. So again, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.